Thank you, Laura. Great job. Take your Bibles and turn again with me this morning. Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 21. It's a delight to see each one of you on this very cold morning. We indeed have had winter today. If we don't have any more the rest of the time, we've had some this morning. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, I want to bring you a message that I've entitled, Demands of Discipleship. There is a defect, even a fatal defect, in the life of the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, a lack of true discipleship. For the genuine Christian, discipleship means forsaking everything else to follow Christ. But for many of today's supposed Christians, perhaps even the majority, is the case that while there is much talk about Christ and even much furious activity that is supposed to be done in his name, there is actual very little following of Christ himself. That means that in some circles at least there is very little genuine Christianity. Many who fervently call him Lord, Lord, as the Bible predicts, are not Christians. We live in a day of casual Christianity. I heard someone say that the average church could drop one-fourth of its membership, and neither the church nor the drop members would ever notice any difference. Casual Christians are those who want to be numbered among the flock, but they could care less about following the shepherd. They want the forgiveness that the cross of Christ brings, but they never really intend to carry their own cross. They want warm and fuzzy moments on Sunday mornings, but they have no commitment to Jesus on Monday morning. In short, they want the crown without the cross. Begin reading with me in verse number 21 where it says, And from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, For Far be it from you, Lord, that this may not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Jesus said that he must suffer many things. Why did he say must? Did Jesus mean that he had no choice? No, obviously, that's not the answer. Jesus is teaching his disciples that his Death on the cross was not one alternative. It was the only way in which men would have payment for the sin. It was the reason for his coming, to die on the cross for sin. Love is the why. It really wasn't nails that held him to the cross. It was love that held him there. But his death was not without a reason. It was not a defeat, but rather it was a victory. For he tells us in the end of verse 21, and he will be raised on the third day. 
But we as modern day Christians need to be careful that we are not come to the point that we become unaffected by the horrors of the cross. We should never forget that dying on a cross was one of the most violent forms of punishment ever devised. It was considered so barbaric that even in the days of Jesus, no Roman citizen could be crucified. The only modern portrayal of the horror of the cross that I have ever seen is Mel Gibson's The Passion. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was so marred by that experience that he was not only unrecognizable as who he was, but that he was unrecognizable as even being human. What Jesus told them that day was very unexpected news for his disciples. Great men do not generally predict their own death. All the disciples were plainly appalled by what Jesus said about his death on the cross, but they all remained silent except one. Good old Simon Peter. Simon Peter was just that individual who usually said what everybody else was thinking. Just the thought of being crucified was more than Peter could bear. And in verse 22 it says, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? He took the Lord Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. Peter, the one who has just made this great confession of faith in chapter 16 and verse 16, now has the audacity to try to correct Jesus. How can anybody call him Lord and just in the next breath say that you're wrong? Just as amazing to us, perhaps, is Jesus' response to what Peter said in verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, get, me, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. I believe that Jesus whirled around and that his rebuke is not just speaking, spoke to Peter, but to all the disciples. And the reason that he said, said to him, get behind me, Satan, is that, that he recognized that this was the same temptation that had been offered to him in the wilderness. The temptation to avoid the cross. And so Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. But I don't want you to misunderstand what Jesus said when he said, get behind me. He's not telling Peter, get lost. He's saying, Peter... You need to get back into place that I've called you to, walking behind me as a disciple. And I want you to notice three things with me about the discipleship that this passage teaches us. First, it's the choice of discipleship found in the first part of verse 24. And then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me. And I think you ought to underline those two words, if anyone. Now, remember this teaching comes right after Peter's great confession of faith, and it helps us to understand that Jesus is looking for more than just a, con a confession. He's looking for commitment. The life that Christians are called to is really anything but easy. 
Jesus now turned to his 12 disciples and he spoke, but the words are clearly meant for a larger audience than just the 12. He gives an invitation that is wide open to all of humanity. He says, if anyone, if anyone, whoever they may be, genuinely desires to come after me, they will be welcome to do so. If they want to come to me, they're going to be welcome to come and follow. He invites all to come, and he rejects no one who accepts the invitation. But take very careful note of the important word, if. It highlights the essential condition. It's up to you. If you will, you may come. And then Jesus lays out three crucial requirements demands of anyone who would come after him. We find it, secondly, the conditions of discipleship. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. You would need to underline that phrase. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. Underline the words, take up his cross. And thirdly, and follow me. Underline the words, follow me. Three steps are outlined here which involve a decision of the will. Luke helps us understand this because in his account, he includes the word daily. Daily. To help us to understand that discipleship is a daily discipline. We follow Jesus one step at a time, one day at a time. First of all, the disciples are called to lay something down. He says, let him deny himself. It's important to understand that Jesus, what he doesn't mean when he says, deny oneself. By this, we usually mean give up something. It's kind of like the way some Christians observe Lent. They give up something. Perhaps it's the giving up of some bad habit in their life or something really important like, I'm going to give up wearing my bullwinkle House shoes for the coming year. Something really important. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not only concerned about what we do, but even more importantly, what we are. Therefore, he's not talking about denying ourselves luxuries, like saying, well, I'm not going to drink Cokes, or even necessities, but about denying self, which is entirely different. Denying self means that we renounce the right to rule our lives. To deny ourselves means basically to say no to yourself. You relinquish all your claims to your own life. You deny your self-trust. You deny your self-sufficiency. You deny any feeling that you are able and capable to handle life by yourself and run your life to suit yourself. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, that as Christians, we don't belong to ourselves. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The level of commitment, though, among 
Maybe even the average Christian in the typical church is very low. Most of us want to follow Jesus until it interferes with our plans. It goes something like this. Okay, I'll serve you, Lord, but I'm not going to let it get in the way of my family. Or I'll serve you, Lord, but it can't conflict with my job. Or I'll serve you, Lord, but I'm a human being and I have a right to do this or do that. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14 and verse 33, If you do not forsake all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. The second thing we note is the disciple is called to lift up something. Let him take up his cross. To understand what this cross that Jesus is referring to, again, we need to understand what he's not talking about. The cross is more, just, more than just an event in history. It's a way of life. The cross is for all those who follow Christ. This verse says, If any man will come after, after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What are our crosses then? Your cross is not having a nutty boss. It's not having an unfair teacher. It's not having a crabby mate. It's not an illness or a handicap. You know, we look at our lives and we say, well, that's my cross that I have to bear. But it's not. That's not what Jesus meant. A cross comes specifically from walking in the steps of Jesus. It comes from living out the ethics of the Bible in our daily lives, in our business life, in our personal life. Our crosses come from and are proportional to our dedication to Christ. Difficulties in life are not a sign of living for Christ. They are not our cross. Difficulties for Christ are our crosses. When Jesus spoke of the cross, everyone in his audience knew what he was referring to. John MacArthur writes, The cross was a very concrete and valid and vivid reality. It was the instrument of execution reserved for Rome's worst enemies. It was a symbol of torture and death that awaited those who dared to raise a hand against Rome's authority. It has been estimated that perhaps 30,000 people were crucified under Roman authority during the lifetime of Jesus. When Jesus says that we are to take up his cross, he's saying that we are to live as people who are already dead. We are called upon to take up that cross once and for all and go after Jesus. We're not to back out. We're not to turn around. We're not to lay down that cross. We are to die on that cross and give him all the glory with our lives. The phrase has the idea of being willing to go all the way for Jesus. No holes barred, no turning back, just a steady, humble walk that follows his footsteps in this world. The disciple is also called to live something out. He says, let him follow me. If a disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ, and we are disciples of Christ, it follows that we have to be willing to be led. 
We're willing to be led into places that we don't understand. We'll be led into places that can be dark and scary or even painful and unpleasant because we trust and follow the shepherd. The word follow really means obey. It means to choose on a daily daily basis to do and say what Christ commands. That's what following means. In the original Greek, there are three steps, and they have an interesting sequence of tenses. All three verbs are imperative, which means that they are commands. But the call to deny oneself and take up one's cross in the Greek are aorist tense, which means past event, present results. However, the last one, follow me, is present tense. It means a continuous action. It's not the decision of a moment, but rather an agenda for a lifetime. It is a way of life. It is to be the pattern for our living. To follow is a long, continuous action. Someone has referred to it as a long obedience in a single direction. It is constant obedience to Jesus Christ in thought, word, and deed. This struck the disciples and the multitudes who followed after Jesus with a very solemn and serious impact. In fact, if you look in John chapter 6, it says that it is at this point that many of those people turned back and followed Jesus no more. Because to them it seems so demanding. To truly be a disciple, one must be fully committed to his plan for our lives. But here's the good part. His plan is always better. It is often harder, but it is always better. The third and final thing this morning is the compensation of discipleship. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? For what will man give in exchange for his soul? His statement about losing and gaining is a parable, but it is also a paradox. A paradox is a statement which seems at first glance absurd, but really does communicate a profound truth. To help us get a handle on this great truth, let me substitute some other words and phrases for the word lose. Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life, play it safe, will lose it. He will waste it. But whoever loses, that is, surrenders his life for me, will find it. He will be rewarded. John Piper has written a book entitled, Don't Waste Your Life. The argument of his book is that most people, Christians included, are wasting their lives by living only for themselves. Piper gives an illustration of a couple featured in Reader's Digest who took early retirement from their jobs in order uh, to move to Florida and live the good life. He was 59, she was 51. 
The story was about how they enjoyed their leisurely retirement, cruising the gulf in their 30-foot boat, playing softball and collecting shells. Doesn't that sound nice? Well, it does on some levels. But Piper wrote, at first, when I read it, I thought it had to be a joke, a spoof on the American dream. But it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the great last work of your life, before you give an account to your Creator, be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture this, when you stand before Christ on the great day of judgment, you say, look, Lord, see my shells? That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade us to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. Jesus says the person wastes their life who lives only to please themselves. Nothing could be more opposed to the philosophy of our age. The world today says you better look out for number one because nobody else is going to. If you don't take care of yourself, nobody else will. You have the right to live for yourself. Jesus says to them, in effect, the time may come when you can save your life by abandoning your faith. And every day in our world, some Christians are faced with that tragic choice. You can save your physical life by abandoning your faith. He says if you try to save your life by giving in to the opposition of the world or by accommodating yourself to the world, what is the result is the loss of real life. Jesus says that if you hold on to your life and live completely for yourself and your own selfish dreams, you'll end up with nothing. But if you, live, if you give up living for yourself and surrender your life to Him, you will end up with everything. To miss out on the one person who can give you eternal life is to miss out completely. By living our lives for ourselves we forfeit eternal life. But by living our lives for Jesus, we inherit eternal life. The Apostle Paul said that the problem is <clears throat> that we often settle for an, a, a temporary reward rather than an eternal reward. In his letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 5, 6, the Apostle Paul says, But she who lives in pleasure that is self-indulgence or luxury, is dead while she yet lives. The word translated pleasure appears only twice in the New Testament, here in 1 Timothy and in James 5, 5, where it is translated luxury. The Bible warns that the person who lives only to accumulate more and more possessions and lives a completely self-centered and indulgent life is already dead. There is clearly a, disciple, a cost to discipleship, but the reward is exponentially more than the investment. Verse 27 contains the final difficult passage 
verse of this passage. And there have been several in this passage. It says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So what does he mean when he says, Some of you who are standing here will not see death till you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I'd offer the following three alternatives to you. He could be referring to the resurrection or to the Holy Spirit's coming on Pentecost. He could be referring to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. But I think it's probably number three, which is he is referring to the transfiguration when Jesus appears in his glory before his disciples. And we'll be looking at that next time. A few years ago, country singer Tim McGraw had a song entitled, Live Like You're Dying. It's a story of a man in his 40s who learns that uh, his father has a terminal illness. His father's message is to live life to the fullest and not waste your life. What you may not know is that Tim McGraw's father, baseball great Tug McGraw, had been diagnosed with cancer a year before Tim recorded that song. In the song, once the son realized how short life was, he sang about some of the things that he wanted to do, some of those things that he had not yet accomplished. But then he went on to speak about some deeper truths. He said, And I loved deeper, and I spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness to those that I had been denying. And the song ends by saying, Someday, I hope you get the chance to live like you're dying. Like tomorrow was the end. And you got eternity to think about what to do with it, what you should do with it, and what I can do with it. The truth is, we're all dying. Oh, it is true that some of us will live longer than others, but we're all dying. There's a lot of truth wrapped up in that little saying that you probably all heard. Only one life to leave. It will soon be passed. Only that which is done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us about the temporariness of this life. About reminding us of the demands of being your disciple. Father, it may be that there are some here that have thought about it, been challenged by your word, recognize that they have not yet established a relationship with thee. They know that if they died right now, they have no expectation that they'd spend eternity in heaven with you. Lord, I pray you'd speak to their hearts, help them to realize that they can have that assurance and they can have it right now, that if they will turn to you, Admit that they are sinners. Ask you to forgive them of their sin. Ask the Lord Jesus to be their Savior, that he will come into their lives and their hearts. Forgive them and give them eternal life right now, right here. For those of us that know we are saved, we need to be reminded from time to time <clears throat> that the Christian life is not easy. In fact, it's impossible 
impossible without you. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd remind us of demands that true discipleship plays on our hearts, and I pray that each of us would be willing to step up and make a difference with the life that you've given us. Father, whatever you want to accomplish in our time of invitation, we want to turn this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.